bookends, you and me. Black and white. Bits of grey in between. What use of feelings? I can bring back the dead. My Dennis. Hello, Martin here. Thanks for tuning in to the first of three exclusive new interviews with the principal cast members of Tenko. This first interview sees Andy talking to Veronica Roberts, who played Dorothy Bennett in all three series. After her husband was murdered by the Japanese and her baby daughter died of dysentery, former housewife Dorothy becomes increasingly disaffected and nihilistic. She soon elects to give herself to the guards for extra supplies and shows no loyalty to her fellow prisoners. It is not that Dorothy is necessarily out for herself, but rather that she is disinterested in whether she will survive. In the second series, the discovery that Dorothy is pregnant sends shockwaves through the camp, while in the third she faces the difficult prospect of building a new life for herself from scratch, and the repercussions of her behaviour in the camps. Veronica, known as Ronnie, trained at Lambda. Prior to Tenko, she featured in several Jack Rosenthal television plays and Mike Lee's The Permissive Society. She also played the regular characters of Deborah Wilson in the final series of Granada's Sam, Angela Nuttall in Devonish, and Kamora in Warrior Queen with Sean Phillips. Since Tenko, Veronica has worked extensively in theatre, while on television she has played Laura Elliott over four series of Peak Practice, Gloria in Party Animals and Mrs Goddard in an adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. She has also made multiple appearances in Holby City, Doctors, EastEnders, Casualty and The Bill and is still acting today. Hello, Veronica. Hello, Andy. Good to be here. <laughs> Thank you. I always want to call you Ronnie because I know everyone calls you that, but it feels rude. <laughs> rude. Carry on, you can call me Ronnie. <laughs> so I wanted to go right back to to the start of your um, of your life, I guess, in, in the sense that I'm, I want to ask about um, how you came to act. And am I right in saying that Judy Dench was partly responsible for your choice of this career? Um, certainly an influencer. When I was 14... I happened to watch the famous John Hopkins quartet of plays Talking to a Stranger. And uh, that was starring, amongst others, the then 20-something Judy Dench. I think it was Morris Denham, Michael Bryant and Marjorie Mason who were also in it, who I later worked with on Peak Practice. Um, and I was enthralled by the play and by Judy Dench. Um, I couldn't have put it into words then, but the experience made me realise how drama, a play, a performance can change you. It can transform you. It can enlighten and illuminate um, that a play could be a mirror back to you, to your own condition, and that you might end up knowing more about yourself and the world by watching a play. I mean, it literally stopped me in my 14 year old tracks. Um, and I just knew I had to do that, whatever that was. And I wasn't even sure, but I had to go on the adventure and explore the possibility and take a risk. And yeah, that's, that's absolutely what caught my attention and focused me and put one foot in front of the other on that path. And it's not one of my questions. I'm being a bit naughty here, but um, I watched Red Letter Day last night. Um, what? Yeah, um, the with about the registrar with Judy Parfit. That's right. <laughs> um, a Jack Rosenthal play. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a lot of roles in the seventies in lots of TV plays, Jack Rosenthal and the like. Um, yeah, I did a lot at Granada during that time quite a lot, uh, which kind of was, uh, because I'm from North Wales and from that Northwest corner, sort of Liverpool, Manchester, Chester, end of the world. When I was a child, my occasionally we, we would as a family go into Manchester. And um, I can remember standing outside the Granada building again, probably in my early teens and Granada TV had 
just become the new big television station and itself was about to produce some astonishingly good drama. Um, thinking, I wonder what it would be like to be on the inside of that. Uh, and so to be, to be doing that work up there and with the great Jack Rosenthal, who everybody so loved and revered, was heaven. I couldn't believe my luck. Tea or coffee? Yes, please. Which? Yeah, whichever's easier. Well, makes no difference. Well, either then, Jenny. Tea then. Coffee, I think. Coffee. So moving on to, to Tenko, do you remember how you got the part initially? It was very simple. I was asked to go in for an interview. Uh, what I didn't know was that Pennant Roberts, who was the director on the first series, had, well, I think they'd sort of cast some of the lead parts like Anne Bell and Steph Cole and uh, Patty Lawrence and various people I think had been cast. So they were, they were getting to more characters then. And Pennant had seen a play that I'd done for the BBC, an improvised play called Shaping Up, which had been directed by Sarah Peer Anderson, kind of in the Mike Lee vein of type of work. And um, he had seen that and it had made him think, oh, she might be good as Dorothy. I mean, it was that random, um, but I'm forever grateful he watched it apparently. Um, it was, he must have been one of the early adopters of the then new um, video recording equipment at home. And uh, he recorded it and watched it late one night and thought, oh yeah, we'll have her in. So did the prospect of um, a wartime drama series um, grab you? Absolutely. I, I mean, I was born in the 50s, so TV was in its infancy, but a lot of British film and TV drama was about the war or um, things like the French Resistance, um, you know, Dam Busters, Cruel Sea, Bridge Over the River Choir, something like A Town Like Alice, which in fact Gene Anderson had been in, which was the movie about women on a march from um, a prisoner of war camp in Malaysia, I think. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it was um, it was what I'd been brought up on, oh, and it was a world that was utterly familiar to me. And my dad, he'd been in the war, you know, he he was in the Eighth Army, so that was Montgomery and Alamein and then Sicily. And growing up, when the grown-ups got together, often, you know, they would start telling war stories, um, both domestic and in the theatre of war stories. So, yeah, I, I, and I don't think there probably was a garage or a garden shed in the country that didn't have a tin hat or a, you know, an army trunk or an RAF trunk um, in the garage, you know, that belonged to dad. So, yeah, the smell of it was kind of in my DNA. Yeah. Um, so Tenko was quite a different prospect to many of the series at the time in the sense that it was going to have a virtually all-female cast. Did you have any reservations about that facet of it? None at all. I mean, I'm one of five girls and one brother. So I, I grew up in a very female environment and it, it doesn't, I don't know, it just didn't even, I didn't even think about it. To me, it was more of the same, completely normal. I know how to operate in that kind of environment very easily. And uh, even at home, you know, I was, I'm kind of the middle child and middle daughter. And um, that's often a position which is very, sees all sides, um, very, um, have a lot of equilibrium when tensions kick off. So yeah, it was an environment I was very happy in. So you have your character brief, I guess, and the storyline and some of the scripts. Did the character of Dorothy appeal to you when you first started to read who she was and what she was about? I think like any part, you walk around it and you, you take the scraps of information and the description and the script and you start building and you start breathing life into her. And I remember something in the script said something about she comes from Edgware and she's this that and the other and I remember taking the tube out to Edgware and walking around and 
trying to imagine where Dorothy would have lived and gone to school and gone to church. And you know, there was no internet then, so you couldn't Google or look at images. You had to had to get yourself out there and um, and do the research. Um, ask, talk to people, go to the library. So I, I kind of grew Dorothy bit by bit and episode by episode. But um, certainly whatever was there in that first script and the idea of the journey um, that we would all go on absolutely appealed. Dorothy, you must pull yourself together. You really must, or before we know, your milk will dry up. It has already. Oh, no, you know that's not true. It upsets her. She doesn't like it, and it upsets her. Nonsense. Babies are very adaptable little creatures. Given the basics, they'll get used to anything. I don't want her to get used to anything. Why should she? She should be starting on solids. The book says she oh, should Oh, never be mind what the solids. book says. I am telling what you. What do you know? Our life together? Our new bungalow with a real nursery? We named her after Auntie Violet in Wolverhampton. She sent a snap of the garden. She was wearing a straw hat with raffia flowers. And My man one of them. Holding a Japanese parasol. Chap. <gasps> Dennis said if we did what we were told, no harm would come. Shot. So um, initially, of course, you have, well, Dorothy has baby Violet, but I understand you had to cope with two rather than one Violet. Well, to cover the demands of filming, uh, they got somebody who had twin girls um, so that it wouldn't be, you know, one baby that had to... It sort of doubled their chances of being able to film, I think. So, yeah, that's yeah. why they decided on that. Uh-huh. I remember you telling me um, that your mother's experiences informed your performance when it came to, to Violet's fate. Could you tell, tell me about that? Well, when I was five, my mother had a baby prematurely. And she lived for... I think it was eight weeks in an incubator, but she never made it home. And um, for a while after that, I would say my mother was lost to us somewhat um, with grief. And um, I never made it to the funeral because I had measles, I remember. But my mother later, when she was able to describe many, many years later aspects of what that felt like. She she would always tell it like um, she wanted to run to the cemetery and claw the earth back up and off the coffin and get her baby out of there. That was the feeling. And as a small child to listen to that, it was a very vivid description, both emotionally and visually. And and so somewhere it, it was, I can remember trying to imagine, even as a young child, what that must feel like. And, and I couldn't quite then, but it's, it was something I think I drew on uh, when I, to try and recreate the possibility of that feeling around losing any baby, but certainly a baby under those circumstances in Tenko. So that first big episode for Dorothy, episode four, how comfortable did you feel playing all that anger, frustration and fear? There's so much going on under the surface there and, and outwardly, I guess. Um, do you know, weirdly, I, I, I don't remember thinking it was hard, um, just really feeling the responsibility of trying to get it right and trying to get it believable. Um, to, I think we all had it in the series of trying to honour the reality of what people had actually gone through um, as near as we could. And so you just do it bit by bit, scene by scene. 
feeling by feeling. Nobody feels one extreme emotion 24 seven. You kind of have moments where it's more intense than other times and kind of figuring out whilst Dorothy was, you know, burrowing under the barbed wire to go and get milk for her baby and all of those parts of the run up to what happened. Uh, you just concentrate on the adrenaline of that, uh, of being brave and daring fate. And I think there was a streak in Dorothy whereby at times she would go to the edge, as it were, of whatever was happening because there was no alternative. What was the alternative? And if the alternative was dying, the further you got into her journey, the less she cared or numbed out. Um, so yes, I, I don't know. I just threw myself into it really. I have to go out. What? Out. I'm going for milk. What milk? Where? The violet. It's all arranged. I'm picking it up beyond the latrines. What? Under the wire. Outside. Shh. Are you mad? I don't care. You should have asked Marion. That's dangerous. Please. I need someone to watch over Violet. You're the only one I trust. Bloody hell, Dorothy. So in that first series, I think we learn as much about Dorothy from her actions and her expressions to what's going on as much as her dialogue. Um, did you want more dialogue or feel that you had enough screen time and part and Roland scenes to, to convey her story? Um, you know, Andy, I never, I don't think I ever remember once thinking of it in terms of how many lines have I got. And do I want more? It never even occurred to me to equate it in that way. I don't suppose I was that competitive. Um, I kind of just assumed that the writers and the producers and the directors would get the balance between the storylines right. And that there was a natural, um, there was a natural kind of flow to which character came forward and then returned, they came in and out of, of, of the, the group, as it were. So to me, it pretty much felt right. And as Dorothy went through her toughest of phases, less words, more looks seemed to be the right balance in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing that I always notice is you're always doing something. And was that theatre craft? Was that TV craft? How, how did you know that you should always be doing something? And I don't mean in the sort of, hey, I'm still here, right? <laughs> but sort of like this... I know, sustaining the, uh, the reality and yeah. presence of character. It absolutely comes down to having worked with two people. One is Mike Lee, um, whereby you've done enough backstory that you, you know what your character's attitude and feelings would be even if not expressed about everything. So other people you're in the room with, what people are saying, what the weather's like, that you have a, you build a kind of sense of being present in that reality, in that moment in time. And the, so the work I'd done with him on a, a very early improvised play that he did at the BBC um, had kind of really made me aware of what a difference it made. And the other person is a theatre director called Mike Alfreds, who I had worked with very early on um, out of drama school. Uh, he had a company called Shared Experience. And the first thing we did was stories from the Arabian Nights. And again, his training, his, that it's not about acting, it's about being present and being alive in every moment. And if you're not that, then the audience will, will not believe you, simply won't believe you. So finding that in every scene became second nature and still is really. Mm. I'm eternally grateful to both of them, yeah. both the mums. Uh -huh. um, also not one of my questions, but um, it's just occurred to me. Um, I remember writing in, in the book, Remembering Tenko, quick plug, <laughs> that you have a knack of delivering lines in a way that I'm not expecting. 
<laughs> so <laughs> the perfect example I think is I think it's about episode five after you've had the big episode and you're talking to Sally I think it is in the wash house and the line is um, I don't feel anything and I you kind of expect if I'd seen that written down on a script I would think oh well I'm just gonna write I'm just gonna say I don't feel anything like listless but it's an what you go for is an emphatic I don't feel anything and it's a real surprise, a beautiful surprise, and it sort of takes you aback. Do you remember, I mean, how do you go about t- making those lines count? Now, A, I don't have a memory of that. I'm going to have to go back and have a look at it myself. Um, I don't think there's any conscious decision to play a line with a particular inflection in order to make it stand out. I think it's more that one with every line knows what one's doing with the line. So how can I explain it better than that? So that that, that made sense, yeah. It's about the intention, yeah? Yes, yes. It's like, if, if you're just saying something and you haven't thought, why is she saying this at this moment in time? It's, it's just about making sure that you're not just saying something for the sake of saying something, that there is some, it comes out of the character for some reason. And whether it's an internal reason or an external reason or a reason that is not obvious to the line, you kind of explore as you're working on the scene. And the more you know about where it fits in the story, so where it fits in with what happened before and what's gonna happen after and what that stepping stone's about, then you can make it count. The more you know, the more you can make a scene live and any line within that scene live. Oh, Dorothy, I know how you must feel. Don't feel anything. You're bound to feel that now. You're very young, and you mustn't feel that your life is over. When we get out of here, and we're back home in England, in time, you may well meet someone else. Have another baby. So you think we'll be out of here? God willing. What if he isn't willing? Well, we just stay here and rot. We try and make the best of it. I don't believe in God. Moving on, there's a lot of real-life accounts of internments from the real Australian nurses and stiff upper lip British women, but nothing, those who survived, but nothing from or or about anyone like Dorothy or indeed Blanche. Were you aware you were playing the story of these more forgotten or or deliberately hidden women? Um, Yes, I mean, I think in Lavinia's book that she wrote... Yeah, Women Beyond the Wire, yeah. And um, and her um, her conversations with some of the real women in the camp, it was quite obvious that there were women who were willing to fraternise with the guards for medicines, for cigarettes, for whatever to survive, and that although there was what there were probably a lot of women who. Um, were very critical and judgmental about that. There were a lot who were also admitted to feeling incredibly grateful because it meant that the possibility of rape within the camp was reduced to an absolute minimum. So there was a very mixed attitude, I suppose, from the women in the camps. Now we were, we were very lucky when uh, Tenko was launched to meet some of the women that Lavinia had met through the book and through the um, documentary that had been done on television about the real women. And there, there, were, there was one woman who, who said to me very clearly, well, yes, we think the, the, the series is very good, but of course there was nobody like your character in the camp at all. And I said, oh, right, you know, and I didn't do anything with that. It was, you know, I'm doing the drama, you live the real life. Um, 
And then literally five minutes later, um, two women who had been children in the camp and a lot younger uh, told me the exact opposite. They loved my character because I was just like somebody who had been in the camp and who, who they had really liked and who was a lot of fun and who would occasionally slip them chocolate or things that she'd managed to get. So now what was your question? <laughs> and am I answering it? <laughs> there you are. It was just about where you were where you were you were playing the story of of forgotten or or deliberately hidden. Yeah. So yeah. yes, I was I was aware. Yeah. And I was also aware that there were different attitudes about, about admitting that they existed. I, I kind of was very unjudgmental about Dorothy and what she decided to do because none of us know what we do under those circumstances. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never considered that reduction of rape angle before. That's just blown me away. Of course. Makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it ever hard to transport yourself mentally to the Far East? You're in Sumatra, but mm. you're in a prison camp or a, a set in Dorset. Was that a difficult disconnect ever? Um, no, uh, I've always had an imagination that allows me to step into that possibility um, uh, to pretend, but it was a lot easier once I'd actually been there. So I didn't go to Singapore in the first series because I, my character came in on episode three, I think, and the, the others had been out there filming so I didn't, I didn't have any real experience of Malaysia or indeed any part of the Far East um, until we went out to Kuala Lumpur and the East Coast. And then I was amazed at what a great job they'd done because having put, you know, um, palms on stilts behind the huts, uh, you got some of that palm tree look, but in amongst British foliage. That's exactly what Malaysia countryside looked like. I couldn't believe it. The sort of deciduous trees plus palms. Um, so, but having been there, yes, of course, the, 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 the humidity and the heat um, became something I could instantly recall. So I understand that you and Louise, well, you weren't rebels, but you, you moved out of the Pula Hotel and away from the rest of the cast after a time. What was the reason for that? Well, it was the hotel was fine, but yeah. the room I had was, was really quite small and stuffy and hot. And it was the summer. And in those days, uh, the BBC gave you per diems and you paid your own bills. Um, so Lou and I figured out that if we, we could save a lot of money by renting a two bedroom flat between us and we'd have more space and a garden and we could cook for ourselves instead of having the expense of paying for every meal that we ate um, and having to eat out all the time. So we loved it. We, we, we got a little flat on the edge of town and we moved in there for the duration and um, and we had a lot of fun. It was great, absolutely great. I think that that's when Lou and I became firm friends. Um, I think she was pregnant with Harry towards the end of it. Hmm. And we had long car journeys singing with the radio on and having sort of Thelma and Louise moments. You know, it was, <laughs> it was great, great fun. This camp, it's like Dennis used to say. All generals and no squaddies. Yeah. Except for the likes of us. An army marches on its stomach. So where's ours? I expect us to live on this much better load of work. There was another death yesterday. Anyone we know? Mm -hmm. Dutch. Stomach ulcer went septic and... <laughs> Don't you believe it? We'll plod away, looking forward to the next to nothings. Through a parcel here, Nick Fag there. It was my birthday last Friday. Oh, Dottie, why didn't you say nothing? Have another let's pretend. This time next year, you'll see. You'll be home. 
What home? No husband, no kid. This year, I suppose I'll have a sort of family Christmas. My first, really. But with Dad at the boozer, me mum buggered off, leaving me, me gran and me kid's sister, and we had a ball, I can tell you. Moving on into series two, um, can you tell me about going out to Malaysia before the second series? And I understand you went out on holiday with, with Steph Beecham. Well, what happened was I got wind of the fact that um, the producer and the director and the team were going out a week early and to set up. And, um, and I thought, oh, that would be great. I wonder if I, if I pay my own way for the first week to, in terms of hotels, maybe they could give me an early flight and I could go out with them and do a bit of exploring before filming started because I'd never been that far east. I didn't know what it would be like and I thought it would be a bit of an adventure. Well, Steph B, Steph Beecham, um, overheard me asking about this and decided what a merry wheeze, why don't we both go? Well, again, I didn't know Steph B that well at that time. We didn't have huge numbers of scenes together. Um, and I kind of went, okay. And um, so that first week we were in Kuala Lumpur for about, I don't know, five days maybe. And uh, what I hadn't known till I got there was how many people Steph knew, um, particularly connected to the to the then royal family. So um, we got to be invited to watch the king play polo, and um, and he in turn then got his personal pilot to fly us in an aeroplane to Malacca because I had said I really want to go to Malacca and we were going to hire a car and go. And he said, no, 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 you must take my pilot and he'll fly you there. <laughs> so we were flown to Malacca where we had lunch and we were met by somebody else who went with us. And um, and then I remember we flew back really quite low so that we could see everything. And we flew straight into a monsoon storm and had a really bumpy last 20 minutes and landing in absolutely appalling weather back in, in Kuala Lumpur again. So again, another mad time. And we hired a car eventually to drive across to the East Coast to Kuala Trenganu, where the filming was going to be done in time to start that. And again, drove through a monsoon rainstorm and I was concentrating on trying to see through the window screen and get us there. And what I didn't know was that Steph's side of the car was taking on water and she was up to her ankles, <laughs> water in the passenger seat. It was a scary old, hairy old journey, but we made it. And so there's, there's all these sort of little legendary stories that I remember from that time. So um, I wondered if during any of the filming, you, I mean, I'm thinking about the march at the start of the second series, if, if and all the tankos you had and being grubby all the time, did you ever feel like an actual prisoner yourself? Not really, no. Um, there were times when it was very hot. Um, not weirdly in Dorset, I remember being worse than actually on the march. If you're moving, it's not so bad. It's when you stood still on the on the parade ground, as it were, in the heat, and when they're setting up a shot or moving from one angle to another, it's easier to keep everybody there than disperse them and get them all back again. And that would be interminable at times. But the absolute worst filming was in series three, where they built a small camp that we were supposed to be between one and another, I think. And it was somewhere near Farnham. Yeah. I quite know why we were there but they put down a load of what they called industrial sand it was very gritty sand and it was really windy for some reason that week so and we were all staying in the happy eater motel on the a3 i seem to remember <laughs> so we would we would get made up and they they would spray you often with kind of baby oil to give you that hot sweaty look and then the wind would blow, and you can imagine that grit would stick to you. 
and it would be on your face and you wouldn't want to. and the trouble was that because of the uh, how long it took to to make people up that they couldn't unmake us so we had to eat like that you had to go to the loo like that you had to you know you were just in it for the entire day it was so uncomfortable that was a kind of torture nothing that was experienced by anybody in a real Japanese prison or war camp but you know we, we used to come home on the coach back to the Happy Eater Motel and go straight into the shower for 20 minutes whilst you've got all of this gunge and rubbish off you what the state of their drains must have been like with all that grit I do not know but um, oh you felt reborn after a shower at the end of those days I bet in the second series Dorothy develops her relationship with sister Ulrika and the characters have, are seen to have an incredibly deep connection can you tell me about working with Patricia Lawrence I loved Patty she was quite a character in her own right, married to Greville Polk, who was a charming and delightful man. They were great um, patrons of the arts. They'd both been in Ensa themselves during the war. In fact, that may have been where they met, I can't remember. But Patty was intelligent, deep, funny, full of contradictions and an absolute delight to work with. And um, she rather nailed that character and she loved playing it. And I loved, loved the scenes with her because they were such an unlikely polarized pairing. Um, but it worked, it just worked. Do you have to go? Yes, I have to go. My fault. You have fault? Would you take from me my own decisions? Of course not. It's for you. It's all I have. From Violet. And I. I have nothing to give you. Any of you. Don't be silly. What you've given us is in here. She was a very generous woman, generous, generous people. Um, sometime after Tenko, I was going through a hard time financially and she and Greb lent me some money, which was an absolute lifesaver at the time. And then when Patty was, uh, got ill um, with cancer before I had had a chance to pay her back and I saw her and I said, Patty, I need to want to talk to you about this. And she said, I know, darling, you're worried about paying me back and you can't at the moment. And I said, and I burst into tears and I said, that's it. And she said, I know you, Ronnie. And um, you will do what you can when you can. And you mustn't worry about it. And if I die and you haven't paid it back, you will simply find a way to take care of somebody else in your life the way that took care of you. I suppose in present day, we'd call it paying forward. Well, indeed she did die. And I got an official note from the solicitors, her solicitors to say that um, that debt had been, there was no debt. I mean, her, her attention to detail and friendship was, oh, I'm choking up now thinking of it, was, was astonishing to me, just astonishing. It was, she, translate, she translated money and that gift of money as how much she loved me, I think. She said, Ronnie, you're, you're the daughter Grev and I never had. And I never forgotten it. And it absolutely set something in me whereby whenever I can help somebody out, if I've got the means to do it, whether it's financial or giving somebody a room for six months, to get them on their feet, I will do it. And, um, and that's because of Patty and what she gave me. And that's just a symbol of, of who she was and what she was like. Mm. I loved her. Wow. Mm, powerful stuff. Mm. Mm. Um, 
sticking with powerful stuff, how did you feel about Dorothy's emotionally turbulent pregnancy storyline in the second series that takes place over several episodes? I think, I think that we felt that she was in a mixture of denial and again, this numbness. It's unfortunate. I will not feel anything about it. I have to get through this. What are my options? Let me pick one. Okay, I have to get rid of the baby. It's the only way to go. I could die. So what? It doesn't matter at this point. And it's just kind of being determined in a way not to feel the extreme emotions that that situation throws up and the fact that it would remind her of having lost baby Violet, that um, that, that was what one was going for. And in a way, that was the line through. Just don't feel anything. Just get through this. So that when, um, when the, 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 uh, the war was over, when that, that moment arrived, when that's the end of this reality, I think for Dorothy it was... Uh, it stunned her into... The, the reason to numb out and hang on and be tough had ceased to be in a moment. And who she, she'd left who she was so far behind, I don't think she in that moment had any idea how to be or who to be, how to continue. I think that, that, that's how it played out in me somewhere hmm. Hmm. Uh, that's some of my favorite episodes uh, i interviewed Anne valerie who together with jill hyam wrote most of tenko um and and she's gone now but um back in the day when i was researching for the book and it was obvious talking to her about your character and you that um, she loved writing for dorothy did you ever get to talk to Anne about dorothy and and her, the scripting I did a little, and I wish more. Um, but I ha I've always had a sneaking suspicion that that Dorothy was Anne in a mm. way, and um, I knew a little bit about Anne during the war. I think she'd been in the army, and weirdly, and this is just one of those things, she had been stationed at one time in um, a place called Hosley Hall in North Wales. Um, which was um, in a in a sort of country house on a, a little a little estate, you know, one of those places that the army commandeered. Quite what she was doing there, I don't know. I have a funny feeling she might have been in intelligence at one time. And but what was weird about that was I lived uh, when I was ten. My father moved us to a place called Marford, which is halfway between Wrexham and Chester. And at the bottom of the hill that we lived in was Holsley Hall. And it was owned then by the Forestry Commission. But that's where she'd been stationed at one time. And she used to, when she was in London, she had, you know, she was very sophisticated. And she, um, she used to go and drink, as did a lot of people, in the French House, which is a famous pub in Soho. I think it's in Dean Street which was run by a man, whether he was actually French or not, I have no idea, but it, you know, the free French in London drank there. And I always have this, and, and even in the eighties and nineties, you could often find Anne Valerie sitting on a stool at the end of the bar with a cigarette in her hand, chatting to her. She knew everybody in Soho, you know, the um, Francis Bacon's of the world and all of that, and was terribly at home there. So. I think, yeah, I think Dorothy was in a way her writing some part of her own character aspects of into that part. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And I know she desperately missed that Soho when it went or she wasn't able oh. to interact with it anymore. But um, she was still very grand. I, um, you know, I met her in I think it was the last year of her life. She was eccentric but wonderful yeah had she not been a model in paris at one time have i made i that think she'd done everything honestly yeah 
<laughs> and and some of it embellished and some of it too incredible not to be true. <laughs> I think it's wonderful those people when they get to the ends of their lives and you think, my God, they lived that life. You know, they good, bad and indifferent. They just lived it. They were alive to their own lives. And I think Anne Valerie was very much that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had the, I had the fortune to... Um... I, when when she went, I had the fortune to go to her house um, because there was all the Tenko stuff that she she wanted me to deal with. I ended up taking it to the the women's library um, at LSE so that you know it was preserved all of her Tenko materials. Um, but the stuff that was in that flat, as you can imagine, it was just like treasures. It was just yes. yeah yeah. Um, for series three, you finally got to go to Singapore. Hooray! How was that? <laughs> it was great. It was great. We had such fun again. I can't remember which hotel we were in now, but um, oh, it it was terrific. It was just terrific, and we we had a lot of filming. But we had nice clothes for the first time. We did a lot of filming around raffles. Um, we, I do remember one time we went, where did we go? We hired a car and a bunch of us went up to, did we go to Malacca again? Maybe we did, um, but this time on the ground. And I think Steph, Annabelle, me, and Jean Anderson, I think it was the four of us, we drove to Malacca and back. I can remember Steph doing the driving on the way back and um, <laughs> she decided that none of the Malaysians liked using their car lights. There were always cars suddenly coming up the road out of the dark and there was a lot of swearing went on on that journey. And then at one point we, we saw this sort of fit up theatre going on in a clearing off the road. So we stopped and we went and spent half an hour watching this local theatre group doing stuff, which was fantastic yeah we had we had an extraordinary time and again I I went I think all my filming was in the first four weeks of a six-week shoot so I wasn't actually needed for the last two weeks and would have been scheduled to go back to London but I said again if I pay my own hotel bill can I just come back with everybody else and in fact I took myself off on a trip to Bali for I don't know days I think and my brother-in-law, who sadly has just died eight weeks ago, but he in his early days had been a sound recordist at the BBC, weirdly enough, and had done some of the iconic documentaries with David Attenborough. So even on BBC Catch-Up at the moment, there's something called the, the Treasures of Bali or something like that. And Roger was the sound recordist on that. And he told me stories of being in Bali before tourism and how extraordinary it had been. And I'd always wanted to go. So I took myself off on my own for this uh, sort of wish list trip I wanted to do and, and had that. And then came back and everything was wrapping up. So it was then back to Blighty to do the, the rest of the filming here. I'd have to get a job. It's too hard. I've never done a proper job. My father didn't believe in women working, neither did Dennis. Oh, me. I was at the mill when I was 14. Bloody thankless grind that was, too. Well, there must be something. There's always bar work. Her scrubbing. I wish I had Jake's know-how. That's what I'd really like to do. What are you going to do? Mm, be exciting. Now, wouldn't it? Taking risks all the time. In the storyline, the the adjustment to freedom in series three for Dorothy was always going to be traumatic. Did you enjoy playing her returning to life, as it were? Uh, yes. Yes, I did. It was kind of... Uh, I don't know. It was lovely exploring that journey. You sort of... I felt like she was somebody who sort of walked back into a world she never expected to inhabit again. And sort of kicking a can around the room was what it felt like. Not slightly ambivalent about where to be and rather 
rather being there in this sort of limbo land between the camp and real life back in England, because what would she go back to her? Uh, that, that there was no way to explain her experience, her mother, to her, to her family, to anybody she had known before. She'd lost her husband, she'd lost a child. She couldn't have expressed or shared what had happened to her and who she'd become and how that affected her with anybody who would have understood it, who would have, everybody would have been censorious about it. So to inhabit the world she was in felt somehow easier. But the kind of meeting with Jake and the, the beginning to feel she could build something back together that would be hers, I think probably gave her enough confidence that when she would get back, she could imagine starting again and reinventing herself. And with the death of her mother, that somehow opened that door completely because she had nobody, nobody whose opinion was going to have to be um, encountered in any way. She was always sucking her bib, so I had to pull it down. At least you're crying. Only for Violet. No, you're crying for your mum. I never really loved her. She was always talking at me, never to me. It was do this, do that. Oh, Dorothy, how could you? That gains one way of loving. Especially if you don't understand someone. And you are a bit of a mystery, even to me. She must have hated the bombing. All that dust. My house is my pride and joy, she used to say. And now it will be yours. Yes, I know. It wasn't half bad either. In my stupid bedroom with its Mickey Mouse freeze. Dad put it up just before he passed over. <laughs> that was one of her expressions, passed over. If somebody fainted, that was passed out, but never from drink, of course. That was not being very nice. She had an expression for everything. <laughs> and now she's gone. Oh, So that leads in episode six to Dorothy deciding to return to England and um, it's one of my favourite episodes and I'm going to admit now to, to the fact that I always cry um, at the end of that episode when you see Dorothy so happy at the bungalow party and, and um, it's, it's just so well done in my opinion. Did you enjoy this conclusion um, despite the fact that you were, you were leaving early? Yes, I did. Um, I, you know, at that point, we had no idea we'd meet up that they would do a Tenko reunion uh, episode. Uh, so we really did think it was the end of the series. And for all that she was and he'd been through, within the story, people were fond of her. Um, they cared about her they had seen her change and grow and the same was true in real life so in a way it was one of those no acting required moments it was um that what was true for Dorothy was that she had finally got released and being in prison is not just something that happens on the outside people can carry themselves in a prison on the inside but I think at that moment she'd lived enough and I think she also felt punished enough um you know sometimes people feel the need to be punished and I think the way she'd been treated and what she'd lost um I, I don't know, I just had the sense that she she gave herself permission to live again her life and to be free and released. So so yes, I, it was it was a moment where she could just throw her head back and laugh and 
let her heart beat again, allow herself permission to be happy again. So, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the reunion special there. Uh, of course, you have Dorothy utterly transformed in that set in 1950. Um, so she's a million miles from where she began as Grotty Dotty, as I understand the, the rest of the cast used to call your character. <laughs> How was that to play, um, Dorothy, um, in this new guise? God, I loved it. Um, I put on a little weight and I was, a, I was really uh, feeling a little anxious about whether that would matter or not. But there is something about those 50s clothes that just feels so me. When I was in them, I thought, oh my gosh, I've got images of my mother and her generation dressing up to go out, the smell of powder, the, you know, the hair curlers, the everything that it took to, to get that look and then putting the lipstick on. I just felt weirdly at home in it all. Oh, and if any Yanks come in, don't forget to shut the prices up. <laughs> Dorothy? Good God, Marion Jefferson. It is. Oh, I wasn't sure. Oh. Talk about a voice from the past. Oh, you look simply wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> oh, do you live around here, then? No. Well, I was just uh, shopping. And you? I work here. You have done well. Don't sound so surprised. No, no, it's splendid. Only the last thing I knew, you were living in Edgware. Oh, sold the house there, put the money into a shop, a junk shop in Fulham. Used to live over it with Maggie and the baby. Maggie thought that was. She's married now. Yes, I heard that from Beatrice. Bee's still out there, is she? Running the new welfare centre with Stephen Wentworth. Uh, Maggie's baby was a girl, wasn't it? Yes, Blanche. And I like the fact that she was okay. It was like, you know, I've been there, I've done that. You can say anything you like to me. It's water off a duck's back. I know who I am now. And her, her sense of self was, was very much in place. So I just loved doing it. And the, I think one of the first um, um, scenes that I filmed was with Anne Bell at the top of what used to be, was it Derry and Tom's on High yes, Street? Yes, Kensington, yeah. And it's now those roof gardens are still there. And um, I think it's now a restaurant or a club or something. Well, in pre and post COVID days. And... Um, yeah, and we were filming up there. So, the, you know, that is one of the joys of doing a series like this, the places you get to that you otherwise wouldn't have seen. And that when you're there, they just, it's like the most brilliant set in the world. It's, it just creates it for you and you, it adds something to, to the authenticity you feel in the moment. So, yeah, joy yeah. to do. And Dorothy sort of, has a unique role in that special in the sense that it there's a very good scripting decision by Jill Hyam not to have Dorothy have to go through the the Tenko experience again like all the other cast members do when they go up to the country to Mrs Van Mayer's and they have the communist uprising and they all have to stand in line again and yeah. Dorothy has decided not to go because she doesn't need to go and she's got Jake and you know she's looking at looking for antiques etc but I, I feel that that feels very right to me that she doesn't have to endure that and she's more from the outside looking in in a way it's it's yeah. interesting it's a real juxtaposition isn't it yeah of um polarizing those two experiences in that episode i think it, it works dramatically very well yeah yeah going to visit ulrika in the hospital in that yeah episode was great and uh, reminded me of in series three, the scene with Ulrika in the church, um, church when she says, oh, you know, what's left for me here? Thanks, the Lord. Someone who will not tell me to rest. When I heard what had happened, I felt so guilty as if it was my fault. Yours? Oh. I promised you I'd go, and I didn't. I think I did better to stay with Jake. 
How did you know? I was sure that our Holy Father, in his wisdom, would not let a trance like that to go by. Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely stuff. So, was it hard to say goodbye to Tenko when it finally ended and you, you yeah. were out for the last time? Yeah, it was. I mean, it had been... It, it wasn't filmed uh, linearly. You know, there was, there was a, a gap between series two and three of at least a year, I think. Michael Grade, uh, when he took over, said, well, what's happened to Tenko? Look, you had these amazing viewing figures. Why haven't we done a series three? So suddenly we were on for series three. Thank you, Michael Grade. Um, so, uh, so we'd done 81, 82, 84 and 85. So that's a long time to be working on something. And you know, I, I knew I was going to, we were all going to miss it terribly. Um, but it, it, had, it had gotten to the perfect place to finish. So there we are. But we, we, we didn't say goodbye to each other, just to the meeting up every day at North Acton rehearsal rooms or wherever we might happen to be. So what place would you say Tenko has in your heart today, looking back on it? A huge place. A huge place. I mean... It was a body of work that I thoroughly enjoyed doing. Um, I love the people I work with. Some of them are still my closest friends. And I think we, we did a good job. I think, I think I always, when I go back to look at it, wonder if it looks a bit dated because it wasn't all done on film and the studio sets with their, um, their set cloths for the outsides through the door and that sort of thing look a bit dated now to say the least, but of its time, I think it was um, a really good piece of drama. And I, it always saddens me that because it's never really been on terrestrial television that when they do those retrospectives of the, you know, 20 greatest uh, TV dramas of all time it never seems to feature and it's because certainly when it's to do with audiences they that unless you watch it on drama channel or yesterday or watch the box set or whatever it might be um, it's never really had the same airing that a lot of other dramas have had so it's never I don't think it's ever been, its place has never been acknowledged to the degree I think it deserves. Yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah. Um, I was still gratified, though, to find that my son, who's, who's 12 now, watched it last year, who oh. we thought it's time for him to see it. And he just adored every minute of it. Every minute. Oh, wow. Yeah and cried in all the right places well not all the right places but you know <laughs> he, he, he it, it really emotionally you know changed him I think and um, it yeah. still has the power I think mm. yeah thank you so much for going back to Tenko today with me um is there oh, anything you'd like like to tell our listeners about that you're you're doing or you will be doing or yeah <laughs> well yeah, as we know it's no action really amazingly some of my friends have been actually filming and doing things uh so there is work out there happening uh i've just done an audio a doctor who audio script that weirdly lou jameson was directing so although she was directing it remotely from home so we didn't actually meet it was she was it was lovely to spend a day with her in my ears um with a few other actors uh, recording that episode. So that was fun. And if all goes according to plan, and if we get a vaccine, and if theatres open up again next year, the tour, the theatre tour of an Alan Bennett play called The Habit of Art, which I was supposed to be doing last year, is scheduled to go ahead next year. Um, starting in March and so it will do a UK tour with Matthew Kelly and David Yelland and then it will end up hopefully 
for a four-week run in New York as part of the uh, Brits Off-Broadway season. Wonderful. Ah. So, yeah, what fingers that will happen. I have a feeling that when, when theatre opens up again, I just got the feeling that it'll be as exciting for the audiences who love going to the theatres, it will be for the people on stage. And when it comes to the curtain call, it will be really emotional because it will be about, we're all back, we're all back, you know? And I think it's a moment um, that I can taste and long for. Mm. Me too, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again so much for your time, Ronnie. You are very, very welcome. And um, yes, good luck with the interviews with everybody else. We love you lots. Oh, thank you so much. Andy's acclaimed and exhaustive book Remembering Tenko, to which most of the series' cast and crew contributed, tells the story of the creation and making of the series, the real-life stories that inspired it, in-depth reviews of every episode, and hundreds of behind-the-scenes photos. Author-signed copies are available from Classic TV Press for £20 each at classictvpress.co.uk. Thank you.